This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Uh, turns out I was at a firm that caused the global financial crisis in Europe. The uh, <laughs> my that's my, so crazy. <laughs> I won't I won't name the name, but I didn't even know it at the time. From the bottom, make no half stepping. I'm the dog. I made it through, so they don't ask questions. Long Beach, and it ain't no half repping. Once a dog, always a dog, so they don't ask questions. Timothy Peterson has over 30 years of global investment experience and is a chartered financial analyst and chartered alternative investment analyst. He is a published expert on cryptocurrency investment and valuation and is the investment manager at Kane Island Alternative Advisors. He's also the author of When to Own Stocks and When to Own Gold and my personal favorite, Bitcoin Spreads Like a Virus. This is his second time on the podcast. Timothy also gives away a ton of information out totally free on his Twitters. Be sure and follow him on Twitter at Kane Digital, at Kane Macro, and N Squared Crypto. Links for any everything Timothy Peterson will be in the show notes. Tim, man, thank you so much uh, for being so generous uh, with your time with me. Uh, you were gracious enough to invite me to see you speak in Las Vegas last year. I had the opportunity to meet your lovely wife, get to know both of you a little bit, and hear you on some panels. And while the audience was a bit sparse, uh, I think that's what you expect in the depths of crypto winter. But I had a really good time. I even won some money at the slots. So I'm just wondering, when are we going back, man? <laughs> Scott, thanks. Thanks for having me on the show again. Uh you know, anytime you want to do a podcast from Las Vegas, I'm up for it. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, my friend, there is so much to discuss. I almost don't know where to start. Let's just kind of recap your thoughts on 2022 and what you're looking at going into 2023. Oh, well, it can't get worse. <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, really? Gosh, 2022 was, was horrible. I, I mean, it was horrible for me um, financially, personally, but I, you know, I think for a lot of people, and I hear so stories from people who have lost quite a bit of money. I, I, I know sort of secondhand, um, uh, around around 2020 or 2021, um, I know somebody that took all their retirement savings and decided to plow it all into Facebook. Um, <laughs> and, and Bill Miller came out in January of 2022, and, and he, you know, he's a self-made billionaire, and he said, "Well, half my worth's in Bitcoin." Well, it's probably not half now. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I, it's it's misery loves company, and so this was a, a crowded room in 2022. I don't think uh, we, we're in the same place now. I, I mean, fortunately, 2023 is a completely different outlook than what 2022 was. 
Hi there, it's Scott. Just want to take a quick second and thank you for listening to the Hot Wallet Podcast. If you've made it this far, you obviously like what you're listening to. So please click follow on the platform that you're listening to this on so you get notified when we drop another broadcast. Also, please leave a five-star review. If you don't know what to write, just tell me about your favorite movie. Put the title of the movie in the subject for the review. That'll be fun. Okay, back to the podcast with Tim Peterson. Let's go. The Federal Reserve, uh, you know, had said this year that they are looking at data and we tend to get a new reaction from the market when it comes to data. In terms of your investment style, you know, we're getting some data this week. Uh, What kind of things are you looking at and what do you think is most important for investors to care about when it comes to the Federal Reserve and the new data that we seem to get? Yeah, you you know, that's a great question. One of the things I really strive to do with my Twitter um, outreach is to convince people to stop looking at price Mm. as indicative of what's going to happen in the future because price reacts to stuff. Uh, and, And my personal um, method is to look for relationships. I'm interested in what's synchronized, what's working um, asynchronously, but what what are the causes and effects, and and is there something out there that can give me an assessment or a confirmation of what the price is and where the price is going to be? And I've I've put a lot into that this year. I mean, it's sort of my my forte. And the two things I'm looking at right now are um, high yield interest rates. Uh, you could say interest rates in general, but I think high yield in particular has relevance to Bitcoin and equity markets. And the other thing I'm looking at is the dollar. Uh, and I've, I actually came up with a metric this year that lets me see the cycles in Bitcoin and equities and high yield and the dollar and commodities. And we are at a cycle low now. Um, so you know, if you want a bottom call, it's not a bottom call in terms of price, but it is a bottom call in, in the sense that you know, the lows aren't, you know, 50% lower from here, most likely. Um, there's more upside potential and downside potential over the next three to five years. I, I don't know about this year. I think this year's probably going to be flat. But yeah, those are the two things I'm, I'm really focused on. Where's the dollar going and where do high yield rates go? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of investors, when they think, oh, well, things are bad or yet they're still going to, to uh, raise rates, et cetera, Everyone immediately goes to, well, this is it. We're going to crash now. You know, in fact, uh, this week, stock market crash was trending. So how do you um, kind of gauge sentiment as an investor and and kind of match that with, you know, maybe some contrarian data that you're seeing? You know, it's funny you, you bring that up because I don't think I ever felt more bearish than I did last Friday. And, and I'm usually pretty good with keeping my emotions in check, but this was just nagging on me. I was like, something's not right. And, and my, I could sense it. I couldn't articulate what it is. Mm. And, and then we, you know, yesterday was a, a, a bad down day, but it's not a crash. Um, and I, I, I still haven't worked through where those emotions came from and why I've mm. got that. I know other people have that too, but other people don't. Um, it's, it's a really mixed bag out there right now in terms of, um, sentiment because there's a mixed bag in terms of data. There's there's many reasons why North American stock markets will will outperform. Uh, okay, it doesn't mean they're going to go up, you know, like they have, but they'll definitely you know be a good place. Look at the world environment, and out of all the places, where do you want to put your money? Europe's got issues with Russia, right? 
Um, Australia and Japan have issues with China. Uh, everywhere else is a little bit more um, developing market. And, and the risk environment there isn't really good, especially with an energy crunch going on. And so you get to North America, Canada, and maybe even Mexico in uh, the U.S. being the cleanest dirty shirt. Mm-hmm. And so there is a case to be made for U.S. equities are not going to crash, even if we have a recession, it, it, even if it's a global recession, because the money's got to go somewhere. And if you had to pick a place to put it in the apocalypse, my guess is a lot of it would come into North America. Yeah, I, I saw this one tweet today uh, that I thought was really interesting, and it was uh, something about you know those guaranteed returns of you know some of these fixed term investment ideas. And one thought was, okay, yeah, you're going to get five percent, but what if the market doesn't crash? You know, you can make that five percent in a stock in probably a short amount of time and not have your money locked up. Yeah, that's a big if, though. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, I've been thinking for a long time. I haven't really articulated. This is the first time I'm going to say it. I've been thinking about a double dip, a double dip crash and a double dip recession, comparable to what there was in, in 1982. And part of that is because the, the fast part of this was the Fed raising rates. And that brings the market down because the market was really overvalued. I mean, it was all the markets all around the world were overvalued because we had this huge money injection and low debt. Um, or low interest rates for a long time. So that part's corrected, all right? So that was the first dip. The second dip is, now what does the new economy look like? Because the world has restructured and it's still restructuring. And we haven't had the effect of high interest rates hit the economy yet. I mean, it takes a long time for that stuff to seep in. We're not even done raising rates. And just like interest rates compound up, um, those those discount rates when applied to earnings, they compound also. And so you get this compound effect of the decline in earnings where it tends to fall off a cliff, right? It's, mm, first, it seems yeah. not so bad, but that, that negativity does compound mathematically and you get a dump in earnings. And that happened in 1970 and that happened in 1982 um, and it happened in 2001. So... Uh, um, we're not out of the woods yet because they don't know what the earnings picture looks like. All the fundamental analysis that I do says markets are still overpriced. I mean, they're not like they were, but we haven't figured out what the earnings need to look like. And in my book, earnings probably should be 30% lower than where they are now, which means the market should be 30% lower than where it is now. Yeah, we had Walmart and Home Depot guide lower this week. And I think that that kind of took the market by surprise as they are big retailers. You know, you think of Home Depot, you think of home improvement, uh, you know, the housing sector just generally. And so if they are guiding lower, uh, you know, technically contractors are probably not uh, signing as many contracts to to build houses, et cetera, et cetera. And you can kind of uh, build out uh, from there. So I think what you're make, uh, what you're saying uh, makes total sense. Yeah, and, and I remember 2008, in 2001, those earn, those earnings downgrades and those forecasts, they don't just happen once, right? We're going to get this again in, in uh, June. <laughs> We're going to get mm-hmm. it again in September. And that's why, you know, these bear markets, these structural bear markets last so long because that correction takes a long time to occur. So, you know, something like Walmart guiding lower is bothersome. That's a discount retailer. So if they're saying, hey, on the cheap end, it's not going to be very good. Um, that doesn't bode well for for anything. 
Yeah. Imagine how, you know, restoration hardware is going to guide in that case <laughs> yeah. in all these higher end stores. So uh makes total sense. I do remember a few pictures that you posted on Twitter matching different bear markets. You know, here's our bear market compared to other bear markets. Is there a previous bear market where you think investors can look for, uh, you know, maybe an outcome of this is what we're expecting? You did mention, um, you know, some previous decades. What decade or previous bear market are you most attached to, can, uh, you know, in conjunction with this current market? There, there's nothing that stood out. And I've looked at it really quali- quantitatively and just said, look, which one's got the best correlation and, and so forth like that. Uh, this is a mix of of two things that have happened. One is it's like 73, 74, where there was an energy crisis. There was um, high energy prices above average ener- energy costs. And we see that in quite a bit uh, of the world, um, shortages in energy. Uh, and that strains the food supply, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then there were elements of the dot-com bubble. I think there, those elements are gone now. But there was a bit of a 2001 in there as well. So that the 2001 piece is gone. Now, does it look like the 70s? Does it look like the 80s? Um, it has tracked those pretty well. Um, it, it certainly does not look like any of the other short-term recessions. Okay, All of those other recessions that occurred in the 60s, uh, like 98, 91, um, the 50s, the 40s, those all had recovered by now. Right? They, we were up making new highs by this time. The fact that we're still well below that all-time high tells me that there's not necessarily more downside, but we're not in a recovery yet. You posted a video that was about, uh, I think maybe 15 minutes long or so, about the next 10 years in the stock market being quite rough. Uh, I'll post a, a link to that video in the show notes. Can you take us through why you think that is? You kind of touched on it a bit, but also what some potential alternative opportunities are that you see. Yeah, the, everyone talks about cycles, and and I've spent um, quite a bit of time trying to understand cycles better because it wasn't something that I learned in school or was in the CFA program, but I think it's a huge, huge part of the way markets operate. And if you look at data going back a hundred years plus, you know these cycles become really obvious. And and uh, Dr. Schiller at um, Yale is the or Princeton is Yale or Princeton? I can't remember. But, um, he's the pioneer for this, and uh, you know he won the Nobel Prize in it. I took some of his work and I I related it to gold, and I found out you know, as other people had that there's this countercyclical movement long-term over 10-year cycles between stocks and gold, right? So I wrote a paper on it, got published, um, uh, did, did very well in terms of um, the, the outreach. And there are other indicators that say, yeah, the next 10 years aren't, aren't very good, all right? The Buffett indicator says that, the Schiller PE ratio says that, uh, asset allocation says that, <clears throat> and my ratio says that. And they all said that at the same time. <laughs> they all point to a zero rate of return for stocks for the next 10 years. That doesn't count inflation. You put inflation in there and you get a negative return for stocks. Historically, gold's done well during those times. All right, You move out of paper investments like stocks and bonds and you buy gold and energy. Gold and energy do great during these hard times. And if you were looking for a better place to put your money, gold and energy would seem to be it. 
Uh, my preference is on energy just because of what's going on in the world. We can talk about that's a whole separate topic, mm-hmm. but I think energy has got quite a bit of potential. And um, yeah, so that's it. That was what the video is about. It was just to educate people. Now I think there, there could be a disruption to this 10 year cycle. Um, there was one that happened when the internet came out and we had the, you know, the dot-com boom, the whole nineties. And you know what? AI may do the same thing. We may have an entirely new boom come out this year caused by AI and what AI does. You know, that's funny you said that because when I was watching that video, I thought of AI, crypto, you know, that kind of thing. And I'm like, hmm, I wonder if 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 something like that could uh, break that cycle. I do want to talk about AI. We will here in a moment. But first off, just focusing on gold, how do you recommend people invest in gold? What's your preferred way? Do they buy gold bars? Are they buying the paper GLD? Or do you like gold miners? Oh, so the, the physical gold, paper gold, or gold miners. Um, now, it depends on how much of a prepper you are. Okay, <laughs> And I I'm know a, you are a prepper, by I'm the way. <laughs> a little bit of a prepper. But you know what? I don't own any physical gold, right? Um just because I, 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 it's just a preference. I think I don't. I, I have a safe to keep it in, but I, I'd rather just own paper gold. So my my business management, like the constraints of regulation, force me into securities. Right. So I don't t- trade crypto. I don't trade commodities. I don't have any commodity accounts. I just work with ETFs and stocks. I could buy bonds, but my preference is to just not buy bonds. I'll buy an ETF, uh, and that just simplifies things for me. So. When I look to an ETF, I, I don't like paper ETFs, things that are futures driven. Look at the, the Bitcoin futures um, driven ETFs. They're terrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, so is the US oil ETF. It's terrible. And the reason is every time you buy a future or a forward-based ETF, you're paying this extra money uh, for, for what's called the carry. And uh, it's sort of like a fee that's built into the economic cost of this paper investment because most investments go up. So they don't charge you what it is today. They charge you what they think it's going to be in the future. So you're always paying a premium for what you're buying when you get a paper ETF. And over time, they do terribly, right? They, all that, the, the fees just eat up uh, and that contango eats up all your profit. So I like um, ETFs that have physical backing. So there are some physical gold ETFs. They'll go out, buy gold, stick it in a vault, and you own the company or the trust that has the gold in the vault. Grayscale Bitcoin Trust works the same way. And so their trusts, you don't have that um, eating away of the profit from futures. The, the disadvantage is you don't always trade at net asset value. So you could be paying too much or too little <laughs> for the asset right now. Grayscale, uh, you can get uh, two two dollars worth of Bitcoin for a buck. And uh, if you've got a long enough time horizon, maybe that's attractive to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, let's let's get into AI, Tim. Recently, we've seen this huge rise in the use and interest of artificial intelligence via. You know, artificial intelligence, uh, uh, picture generators, you type in a picture and the computer will make it. And then, of course, with chat GPT uh, and and Google coming out with their own, I think it's called Bard. Uh, how are you thinking about AI and how do you think it'll affect markets and trading? Well, let me talk about chat GPT first, because I've spent quite a bit of time since December messing around with that. And I've used it to even write a few things. 
Uh, Chat GPT is really fun as an AI tool, but it's also really, really dumb. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a stupid brain. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a little bit surly and it's got an attitude when it talks back to you sometimes. Uh, my experience was that it couldn't do proper math. Like I really, I, it couldn't do basic multiplication sometimes. Most of the time it could, but I was, I was trying to work through, it certainly couldn't do some of the calculus that I was having it do. And I caught some mistakes and I asked it, I said, Hey, like you're missing a minus sign here in this formula. And he goes, Oh yeah, that's right. I, I'm sorry. I missed the minus sign. I'm like, well, how did you, how did you get that wrong? And, and he goes, well, I forgot to, I forgot to move the parentheses around. I'm like, well, can you do this without making mistakes? And he goes, no. <laughs> it, said, everybody, it said, everybody makes mistakes. You need to check your work. <laughs> Amazing. You're the AI of the future, right? Um, <laughs> so I love that. Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, I was shocked. So the Chat GPT is not going to take over the world. You don't need to worry about that version of AI doing things. Um, I, you know, it wrote buggy code for me too. I couldn't get the code to be bug. However, uh, I think that there are some firms, and I would say BlackRock and Goldman and a few others, are rapidly developing AI trading capability, and they're going to come out with something that they will offer their best clients initially and it will trade the hell out of anything that anybody's ever seen okay mm. it will it will know what you're thinking you scott me tim it'll know what what we're planning to do it will look at all the market data it will assess market sentiment and it will act in its own best interest to maximize its own profit and it'll do it faster than we could ever think about uh it'll make fewer mistakes it'll be unbiased in its approach it doesn't have to be right all the time right it only has to be right 60% of the time, 70% of the time. If you build a casino where you win 60 or 70% of the time, you're making all the money. Okay. Yeah. And so AI is going to change everything dramatically, especially in the financial markets. Uh, but it, it's, it's a little bit frightening because I, I think AI can break the financial markets as we know it. That's interesting because we all like as active investors, a lot of people will complain about the algos. Oh, the algos are at it again, you know, looking for liquidity gaps, looking for little moves down. And, and sometimes in equities, you'll get these sharp moves down and then a rip, you know, kind of rip your face off rally back to the upside. And so if uh, AI is going to make things happen faster, then I feel like active active investors need to be even more uh, diligent or find a way to leverage this technology for themselves. Yeah, the, the interesting thing is uh, I've sort of thought through what what the progression of AI trading looks like. And eventually you would have, um, if you want to make money and you're, you're a firm, you would have an AI ETF. So you'd say it's actively managed, but it's going to be actively managed by this computer, right? Mm. And I expect to see several of those come out in the next few years. There's only going to be one best one, right? Definitionally, there can only be one best. And they're probably going to be better than anything else that, that anybody else has done. So if you're an investor, you should put your money into one of these AI-driven things because that's where you're going to get the most money out of it. The thing is, the AIs are smart. So they can look around and say, well, who's doing what? And if it was an objective AI machine, it would say, I'm not the best AI, right? I'm ranked number five. I should take my investment money and I should invest it in AI number one. 
Okay. <laughs> All the other AIs would draw the same conclusion, right? If they're objective and unbiased, they'd say, it's best for me to take this money and not do my algorithm, but just to invest it in this AI number one over here. If everybody invests in AI number one, guess what happens? The market collapses because everyone is invested in one place and there's no more trading. Now, if you want to go another step, the AI would know this too, right? If I can think about it, the AI can think about it and they'll be a step ahead. And they'll say, well, I can't be the super best because that would collapse the market. So if I'm a smart AI, I've got to inject noise into the system and make bad trades such that <laughs> I don't collapse the market. And then you get into all kinds of ethics. Could BlackRock make an AI that intentionally injects noise and false information in the market in order to profit from the mistakes that you make? Right, So it feeds false market data out there in the form of price movements or volume movements. A and you act on that, and then it goes, ha-ha, you know, it's a rug pull. It's an AI rug pull. It's possible to do that. How would the SEC police that? How would any government police that? Oh, impossible. Uh, it, it, they're, they're so far behind. Like, they don't even know what a cryptocurrency is, right? <laughs> you you want to get even more, more sophisticated. All the cryptos right now, they're all obsolete, okay? Uh, smart contracts, all, I don't need a smart contract. I'm going to take AI and I'm going to stick that in a smart contract. Now, my cryptocurrency that's AI-driven can do anything yours does and do it better and faster, right? Because there's no, there's no hard coding, I just have a basically a sentient coin. Have we thought about that? Have we thought mm -hmm. about sentient cryptocurrency in effect or AI cryptocurrency? I don't mean the stuff out there that's the AI, like they slap a label on it. Hey, we're the AI crypto. That's like, you know, putting a banana label on an apple and saying, I'm a banana now. <laughs> um, yeah. I think all these cryptos are in trouble, right? Any smart contract based coin is in trouble because you could make an everything coin and it's just gonna be better. That's why I love talking to you, Tim, because you think four steps ahead, like you really have uh, thought this thoroughly. So in terms of winners in AI, you know, we saw a negative reaction because of Google posting fake information. You're talking about uh, Microsoft's, you know, ChatGPT or OpenAI that's partially owned by Microsoft. Everyone is looking at Bing saying, wow, Bing is the new leader. What do you think? Is there going to be one winner, multiple winners? Is Google dead in the water? How are you thinking around that? Usually the first mover is the, the final winner. Okay. Um, it, it's not always the case, but the the first mover isn't the one that's literally first because you can look at things like MySpace and BlackBerry and those all crashed and burned. They weren't the first that people really wanted. The first thing people really wanted was an Apple iPhone, like that kind of interface. Mm-hmm. Uh, excuse me, Facebook was what uh, what people really wanted, not MySpace. I don't think ChatGTP is or GPT is what people really want yet. Uh, and I haven't looked at Bing. So, but I think Microsoft may get there first. Um, I'm kind of surprised that I'm saying that, but I, I do think Microsoft sees an opening and I think they were the first to jump on it. I think Google did get caught flat-footed and uh, I, I, Microsoft's, you know, Microsoft's got their hands in a lot of stuff. Uh, just look at Microsoft. I said this at, at the conference, the Microsoft Office. Microsoft Office is a 30-year-old technology. 
it's ubiquitous. Right? We're still using Microsoft Office products without any major innovation to them, simply because they're interoperable and because of the network effects. When you put AI on the Windows platform and the Microsoft Office platform and do nothing else, you've already got the majority of the world share of your audience right in front of you. Mm -hmm. And nobody will catch up to that. What do you think are some alternative investment ideas for investing in AI? If someone is interested in AI, how do you uh, consult people in terms of, well, here's you know some, some things to think about in terms of where to put your money? Boy, you got me there, Scott. It's really scary, this AI thing. I, I, I think we're playing with a little bit of fire. Uh, mm -hmm. you, you know, it's sort of like, hey, let's invent um, our own God and then see what this God does. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the Terminator comes to mind. Uh, I was thinking Skynet. How can we invest in Skynet so yeah, we all drive the, Lambos, yeah. Tim? Hey, that's a that's exactly <laughs> what I'm thinking about. Is is Skynet? Uh, you know, my home network is named Skynet, by the way, in honor of that movie. But. Of course, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I, I mean, you've given us uh, a lot to think about in terms of AI and uh, would like to circle back with you, you know, maybe six months or a year and then see what else has developed. See if there are any upstarts, because I do agree with you. First mover advantage. You know, we definitely see that in terms of Bitcoin and crypto, uh, but in terms of search and apps, um, you know, you think of like, I remember Metacrawler or something like that, or uh, for search or ask, ask Jeeves, Jeeves. Yeah. and that kind of thing. And so, that's an instance where first mover advantage didn't really matter. Google just came out and, and uh, you know made it better. So um, I think it's really exciting uh, to see what can happen. And uh, you know, really quick, maybe one final question on AI. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What other areas uh, other than search do you think AI will disrupt? Uh, medicine is a big one. Uh, and I think there's some good use for AI in medicine. Uh, medicine itself has actually gone through a revolution to, to become a lot more data oriented. And it, it has a lot of problems uh, because, I, I, you know, when I was teaching uh, a blockchain class at university, some of my students would get up there, they had to design a blockchain project. And some of them chose medical like projects, like medical record keeping, for example. One of the things I learned is that in the United States, there's no single patient identifier. Okay. So when you go from one doctor to a different insurance company to another place, uh, you get a whole you get a new identifier. And consequently, there's no coherent record of your medical history. That's problematic from a treatment perspective. Now, with AI, you don't need that, right? What you have is an assessment of what you are in your medical history as well as your parents. And that can all be stored and maintained in a way that's still secure or, or more likely it's not necessarily that it's stored, it's identified by the AI mechanism. Tell me about your parents, tell me about your grandparents. 
right? Mm-hmm. You put some basic information and it will know, okay, here's your risk areas. Not just because you said you got diabetes over here and cancer over here, but it, you know, it, it will draw from a, a vast array of data points and be able to do what's literally called um, treating the whole patient. And that's a, it's a rare thing in medicine now because the insurance gets in the way, right? The, the dollar, the piece of it prevents some of that care from taking place, ironically. But I think AI can, uh, can make assessments about your condition in a way that doctors never could. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you think of the rise of Teladoc during the pandemic, right? As, uh, as this like new technology and stuff like that. And so I, I definitely think that area is ripe for disruption. Earlier this month, Tim, you, pibla- you published an article called Bitcoin Whale Watching, which, by the way, I got to say, you are great at making titles. Like, uh, <laughs> your t- Bitcoin spreads like a virus. Bitcoin, it's beautiful, man. I love it. Um, so in the article, you describe net flows into Bitcoin being on par with those of U.S. equity funds. And then you go on to describe that there were more, there's more investment into Bitcoin in 2022 than there were uh, into gold, oil, and agricultural funds combined. Can you please take us through this report and uh, give us your analysis? And I can share the screen uh, if you want me to. Uh, yeah, go ahead. I, I was surprised. So I went and looked at growth in addresses. I knew that Bitcoin had gained addresses net, but I, I wasn't really sure what the amounts was. And I was curious where that growth takes place. And I was I was pleasantly surprised. I saw that um, small addresses did not grow nearly as fast as large addresses. And by large, I mean pretty large. Um, $30,000 plus uh, where you're starting to get into high net worth institutional investing. And, and certainly on the institutional side, things grew um, at the fastest rate than they had since, I believe, 2017. Wow. Um, and that, that was surprising to me. I, I thought, you know, this was being a down year in terms of the price, that this was an asset that would be sort of shunned. And what I discovered is that every major, um, you know, every whale, if you will, and, and large player bought as much Bitcoin as they could in 2022. The, it was the small ones, the small groups that sold accounts with less than $300 or $30. They, they tended to sell. Now, there's t- millions of those accounts, mm-hmm. millions of those addresses. So you certainly do get the price declines because that's only the last two people that traded, right? So you know, if somebody trades $5 worth of Bitcoin, that becomes the market price. But if you look at what the activity was, that money had to come from somewhere, okay? It wasn't newly created in just in newly minted coins. It, mm-hmm. it was capital inflow. And I keep track of uh, some fund flows through ICI, which is the Investment Company Institute. They publish an estimate of what the fund flows are. And these are just funds. This is not it, the total asset class. But mutual funds and ETFs um, had roughly, I think it was $11 billion in 2022 net flows in and out. And Bitcoin had $10, $10 billion. So that tells me that as much money went into Bitcoin as it did into U.S. equities. Wow, that's massive. So how does this, 
uh, information change your view on the current market? Does it does it make you more confident about Bitcoin despite the macroeconomic stuff that's going on, or is it just another data point? Infinitely more confident when I saw this happening. That uh, you know th- these are not day traders out there, and this is not price manipulation. Okay, this is genuine investment. Uh, in chunks of millions of dollars into Bitcoin. And it happened in a year that was horrible. Okay. Yeah. This was a risk off year, mm-hmm. if there ever was one. Bonds had their worst year in 150 years. Bonds. Right. And yet Bitcoin is is just ticking all the boxes and blowing it out of the water. I don't think it, it's related to you know inflation or money supply or anything like that. I think that smart investors saw an opportunity. Here's a chance to get this asset at a small price, at a low price, and they took advantage of it. The, the average acquisition price was somewhere around twenty-seven or thirty thousand dollars, which is only slightly higher than where we are now. And you know these are long haul investors, so typically they will buy when it's low and they will sell to the small investors as the price goes up. But they certainly bought now, and it was this was the most buying by whales that we've seen in years, and probably the second most we've seen in in a ten year span. Wow! What is the most important part of of this chart here that we're looking at? Oh, this is a pretty complicated chart. <laughs> so you pick the 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 um, the most complicated one. I want to go Let's deep with at, you, Tim. Okay, so <laughs> this is uh, the way to look at this chart is to look at the thin line at the top. And those are the small investors. And if that uh, if it's on the top end, then they're momentum investors. They're buying when the price goes up, and they're selling when the price goes down. Okay, we just that works. Okay, I mean it does work sometimes. And then if you're at the bottom of this chart, that's where you're a contrarian. You're buying when the price goes down, and you're selling when the price goes up. And I broke mm-hmm. this out by address size, just compared it to price. Yeah. And small investors in 2022 were momentum investors. They bought when the price went up and they sold when the price went down. Small investors, probably less than $300. Okay. Everybody else bought Bitcoin throughout the year as the price went down. They added to their positions or more, more importantly, they didn't just add to their positions. New investors came on as the price fell. And that happened with the medium small, or I'm sorry, the medium large and the whale sized investors. And the correlation, the, the lower you are to that chart, the more they're buying as the mm-hmm. price goes down. And then you have the bubble indicator down here. Um, can you talk about that? How do you how does someone who is active in this space know, okay, price has gone too high, and now you know, maybe the whales are selling to me? You you have to compare the price to something. You know, even price to 200 day moving average works. Um, and it's worked very well. And so this would be just that ratio. So that's that Meyer multiple. I use um, price to the adoption curve estimate, which was a different um, formula that I used. It, it's basically price to addresses. Uh, it works out to be the same. Um, you can look at price to difficulty, price to hash rate. They're all going to tell you the same thing. And they're all going to come up with these peaks at the same time. And when you start to see it get above um you know, if that price to value ratio is above 50, that's probably a warning sign. It doesn't mean it's going to crash. You, I mean, in 2013, it went from 50 to 100 to 200 to 300 to 700. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there was a reason for that. Um, Matt Carpley was running some bots on the Mount Gox exchange. 
they're forced that up. But at other times, so I don't, I don't use this to time anything because you don't know where that top is going to be. Um, you do know where the bottom is because that's where the fundamental value sits. <laughs> right? That's where, gotcha. that's where when, when, when price hits the 200-day moving average, you're probably close to bottom. That's really interesting. Yeah, this is a great read, and you can get this through uh, the Cane Island website. And again, I'll put the link for this in uh, the show notes. Uh, definitely something that when I saw this, Tim was like, hmm, okay, I'm going to tell my wife that I was really smart for buying some of that dip because I'm buying with the whales. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, this should have made a lot more press uh, the fact that so many institutions bought in 2022 was, is overlooked for sure. Oh, definitely. I also want to go on to another article that you had written, Tim. You know, I posted uh, a a question from Bloomberg that I saw when I read my email yesterday, and it was about retirement in terms of how much money you need to retire. And interestingly enough, it was quite a range from a million to three to five million. And then some people even said that they would need 20 million to retire. You have a great article uh, as well, Retirement on Bitcoin. Could you walk us through um, your thoughts maybe on the Bloomberg uh, article? Because I did see that you commented on that as well. And then what anyone who wants to allocate uh, to Bitcoin for retirement uh, should be trying to do. Yeah, I, I, um, I have a rule of thumb for retirement savings and how much you should say, have saved at retirement. And it's based on generations. All right, It's really easy to remember. If you're a boomer, it's 1 million. If you're Gen X, it's 2 million. If you're a millennial, it's 5 million. And if you're a Gen Z, it's 10 million, right? And it b- roughly doubles, right? One, two, five, and 10. Why is that? Because inflation goes up and the cost of living goes up. And there's a long time for Gen Z to retire and lifespans are getting longer. So mm-hmm. a, a, a Gen Z, like they might not be looking to retirement until they're 80. Right. So yeah. you've got a long and and I don't know what or if, even if it was less than that, let's say they retire at 72, their lifespan maybe run into 105. So you got a long time that you've got to fund. And what's a Big Mac gonna cost in 2050? Like 50 bucks? I don't I don't know. <laughs> but it's probably a lot more than it is now. Yeah. And you know, you can run those numbers out. And I'm I'm being really conservative here. If you've got that amount, you're probably you're probably squared away. You don't even need traditional retirement. But I say have that on top of your traditional retirement system, whether it's Social Security or your pension or, mm-hmm. or anything else. And then all you have to do is just break down that uh, that end number and discount it to what Bitcoin's growth rate is going to be. And again, when I make this report, this is done with some ultra conservative estimates. And I assume that Bitcoin is going to grow slower than it has in the past. And you're going to live longer than you probably will. And that you're going to need more than you probably will. So that you come up with a number of, you know, how much Bitcoin do you need to buy in order to retire? And like I say, on top of what you should have. So this is to supplement mm-hmm. what you already get. And I've done all the math and I talk about it and I, I put out there, if you're, um, if you're currently age 25 and you want to retire early at, at age 45, you need you know, two and a half Bitcoin. Wow. Now that's that's to get started. I I wouldn't say um, oh, there's not a dollar cost averaging in here. This is a lump sum. When you do the dollar cost averaging, it gets way more complicated. And I can't do that on a, in a PDF for sure. A- and this is based on um, 
a, a higher price. I think this was based at a $45,000 Bitcoin. Bitcoin's half that now. So now you got to double this number. So now you need like five Bitcoin. Gotcha. Okay. okay. And I update this report once a year. I'll try to do this again in June. Ideally, I'd like to get this put online as a calculator, um, but that's a lot of work. But if anyone's a, a super duper programmer and they want to donate their time to help me put this online, um, I'd be happy to share the zero profits that we're going to get from doing this together. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, it definitely gave me uh, a lot to think about, you know, reading that Bloomberg bit about retirement generally and the fact that most people think they're going to need three to $5 million to retire. You know, I, my comment on Twitter was like, let that sink in because I think that's way more than people are prepared for, at least the general population. It's definitely a lot of savings and you got to, and, and you're not going to get there in a, a bank CD. So Bitcoin's probably got to be a part of that picture. One thing that you're really good at, Tim, is talking about Metcalf's law and network effects. Um, you touched on this in Las Vegas when I, I uh, heard you talk. You know, you mentioned the Tesla supercharger network. Uh, do you have a thesis about uh, Tesla or electric vehicles? Well, I do have a thesis about Tesla, and I and I've put a report together, which is um, something that you can buy because it's a it's pretty valuable. It, it values mm -hmm. Tesla using network effects and Metcalf's law based on the growth of their supercharger and, and other network locations and that growth rate. And from that, you can drive what their revenues are going to be and therefore you can get their stock price. And I, I do a genuine scientific CFA level analysis of Tesla using Metcalf's law and I, I sell that. Um, the, the good thing I'll, I'll say about this is Tesla stands to be one of the fastest growing companies in the world as part of revenue. They are a first mover. Um, if I had to pick two networks that I would buy, and, and there are several, right? The, all the top firms in the S&P and globally are all networks, okay? Even Alibaba, you throw Alibaba in there. Um, even Aramco, okay? Oil is a network. That's, a, that's definitely a network. Um, but Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, Google, and Tesla are the top five. And Facebook, if you want to throw them in there. Um, they're all networks. Like every single one of them is a network, and they all have identifiable Metcalf's Law network effects going on. And they were all first movers. So when you have a first mover that's a network, it's pretty much game over. They're going to dominate for decades uh, Elon Musk tweeted, Tesla is going to be the most valuable company in the world. I don't think that's hyperbole. I, I think there's a genuine chance. And in fact, I even calculate when that date's going to be in the report that I sell that, that it'll become the most valuable company in the world. Now, lots of things have to happen. Um, you know, the past has to look or the future has to look something like the past. Uh, with, with respect to energy, I don't think that's that big of a problem. Tesla's got some hurdles, right? Um, Tesla was great in 2017. And guess what's happened to the price of lithium since then? Oh, it's gone up like a factor of five, I think, or three at least. And so there's some production costs in there and those batteries at a time when there's increased competition, at a time when you've got higher interest rates and lower financing available for high-end automobiles. So Tesla's got some tough times coming, right? There, things aren't moving in their direction with respect to at least the automobile production side of the business. But in the long run, I mean, Kathy Wood and I agree on a lot of things. She's a little bit more optimistic than I am. 
but uh, you know, it's, it's she, somebody asked her, what's the one company you would just want to buy if you can only buy one? She said, Tesla. Mm-hmm. I think I would say the same thing. How can people check out and buy some of these reports that you put out, Tim? Yeah. Uh, so it's on my webpage, which is kane-island.digital. And here's the, here's the thing. Once you buy the first report from me, you're, you're on my mailing list and I don't spam anybody, but I do tell you, Hey, I've got another report out and I give all of my prior customers a discount. So by the time you've buy three reports, you've paid for your first one. Um, maybe even if you only buy two reports, you've paid for your first one. And I have a lot of repeat customers, so I must be doing something right. Uh, the Tesla report is out there right now and uh, it's on sale. Uh, the Bitcoin report will be out next week, I believe. I only do a formal analysis of Bitcoin once a year. It has a two-year forward look uh, of what the price ranges are likely to be at the end of each year. And uh, it's again, it's based on scientific principles. It's not me pulling up numbers out of my head or anything else. Uh, and uh, it's a realistic view um, supported by science and math as to where those prices are headed and also what the hurdles are that have to be overcome. Very cool. Definitely. Uh, I'll put the link for that uh, in the description as well. Tim, I'd like to wrap up uh, just talking about you. You know, one of the things I loved about Vegas was getting to know you and your story. You know, you had a front seat to the 2008 financial crisis. And I have a feeling that it influenced your investment style. So I'd love for you to share with the audience some of your history and how you developed your style of investing. I was, um, you know, I, I, I sort of modeled it after Buffett, like a lot of people do when you first get started. I mean, I always wanted to be an investment manager. And so I went through the CFA program. But there was a book called The Warren Buffett Way that, that sort of set the foundation for the initial philosophy. Um, and then I, you know, went in the real world. And I was in the investment management business, and I uh, turns out I was at a firm that caused the global financial crisis in Europe. The uh, <laughs> my that's my, so crazy. <laughs> I won't I won't name the name, but I didn't even know it at the time. So uh, I had left that firm in two thousand and one, uh, and and the crisis happened years later. But I knew the guys that caused it. Um, and and I didn't realize it until I was at a CFA conference in Orlando. And uh, I can't remember his first name, but Levitt, who wrote Freakonomics, was the keynote speaker. And he told a story about a guy he knew um, and some research he was doing on how did the financial crisis start and what were the causes. And it was from him that I put all these different pieces together as well as my own experience in buying a home. I, I, I refinanced my home through one of these shady um, mortgage brokers that you see in the big short, the guys that lose their job at the end. I, I went through that, right? That was me. And wow. uh, I got one of the option arms that everyone, uh, that they were pushing, but I was, I knew better, right? I actually made money on my financing um, and the mortgage bank lost money on me. Oh, no. Yeah, because <laughs> I knew what I was funny. doing um, and I had the timing right. So I'm very proud of that. Anyway, so back to uh, the this, this story. Uh, these credit default swaps. And if you watch the big short, it's a, it's a really good um, story about how this happened. I'll put some names to it. Uh, AIG was uh, selling these credit default swaps. Um, they were one of the major players in it. 
And they were selling to my former employer in Germany that happened to be in Dusseldorf. And I only knew that they were in Dusseldorf because uh, of the speech that I heard in Orlando when the guy said that his reporter was talking to the guy who was trying to get some information. I said, where have you been? Because he wouldn't say what he was doing, but he said he was in Dusseldorf. And I was like, oh my God, there's only one bank in Dusseldorf and I worked there. <laughs> uh, and so I knew the fixed income guys in, in this bank in Dusseldorf. It's a large, mid-sized uh, European central bankish kind of place. And it's, uh, it's funny, they were very quantitative, right? And AIG was selling them these credit default swaps and they were buying them up like candy because real estate was doing so well in the 2000s. And AIG actually went to them and said, okay, uh, it's overbought. You need to unwind your positions. And they said, no, we want more. We want more. And they said, okay, have more. AIG sold them more. And um, then the collapse happens. And I read in the paper that Germany, a country the size of Texas, uh, with a population that was a little bit larger than that, but physically the size of Texas, had a bailout, a government bailout, the size of the U.S. bailout, right? Uh, you know, it's a fourth of the of the economy, and it's got the full-size bailout package of the United States. I'm like, wow, what happened there? And it was only later I learned it was my, my company was the one that got them in that mess from overextending on these credit, credit default swaps. And uh, that bank no longer exists. Uh, they died a slow, horrible death over several years after the financial crisis until they were eventually broken up and you know, poof. Wow. I, I saw what was going on. I, I thought about writing a book about it, but it's, um, it's still a fun story to tell uh, that, that they single-handedly, not intentionally, but uh, single-handedly caused the European financial crisis. They were just doing what worked in the past, right? It, that's exactly what it was, you know, and they had their quantitative models. They didn't know, right? These guys are, are computer guys working in an office building in Dusseldorf. They don't know that on TV in America, there's shows like Flip My House, where you just go buy any old property, you put 2000 bucks in it, and you can flip it and make 50000 Because that's <laughs> the way the market was going in the United States. And there were tons of these TV shows. So everybody was going out, hey, I'm a house flipper, you know, and then of course, if there's lots of buying of houses, then there's room for mortgage brokers to come in, real estate um, brokers to come in. So there, there was a big industry there, but it was built on not a lot of stuff. Sitting in an office in Dusseldorf, you don't realize that there's a bunch of this shenanigans going on in the US and that's not a sustainable enterprise, that this mm -hmm. was not demand for housing. This was demand for a quick buck. Yeah. Is there anything uh, out there like the current or like the 2008 financial crisis out now that has you scratching your head like, hmm, I don't know, this looks a little shady. A lot of people are talking about you mean like uh, FTX. Uh, yeah, FTX <laughs> or Credit Suisse, you know, all of these things. And I know Twitter and you know Twitter and how it can get. And so is there anything out there now, <clears throat> Japan, that may, um, you know, cause an unforeseen crisis in the future that people should uh, should study up on? Um, honestly, no, nothing really comes to mind. And it may surprise you. Like, I don't have anything that's like, hey, it, it, there's, there's still some of these exchanges. I think some of these crypto exchanges are, are way worse than FTX ever was. Mm -hmm. All right. So I don't know who you've got your crypto with. 
but there's probably only two or three companies that I think are legit and they're not necessarily the biggest ones. Hmm. Um, I always recommend to people hardware wallet, put it on a hardware yeah. wallet. <laughs> I, I think the SEC is going to come down pretty hard on some of these exchanges too. They've been hinting that, you know, we're going to come after you eventually. And I think that day is coming soon. Yeah, I'm interested. I know, man, I could talk to you forever. Um, interested to know what your take is when it comes to the SEC. And and I know we're kind of jumping around here because I did really want to get that great story about uh, 2008 financial crisis. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're seeing grayscale and the SEC kind of in a battle right now. Do you have any thoughts on on how that could end? Well, it's going to the D.C. Court of Appeals. I think they will lose that case. I think the SEC will win and uh, and the and Grayscale will lose. And, and then I want to see what happens. I, I think that Grayscale has a case to be made in front of the Supreme Court. Uh, I, and I do think and I hope that they do appeal uh, their loss at the at the circuit level and or the appeals level and go to the Supreme Court and I hope the Supreme Court grants the case. The, the Supreme Court doesn't have to take the case, mm-hmm. okay. and and often the Supreme Court will not hear a case if it's a hot topic, because they don't want to be the referee. They want to be justices and administer the constitutional law in this sort of elitist fashion. They don't want to be the referee for the school playground fights. And this is a playground fight. That said, there are some questions that Grayscale raises about whether this is makes sense. Uh, logically, their SEC has no case. Legally, they might have a case. I, I don't. I don't know. But uh, I think it was uh, John Deaton, who's on the the Ripple team, came out and said the SEC has lost four out of their past five cases in front of the Supreme Court, and and they have, and with good reason. The SEC is completely overstepped. Their, their bounds the past several years in um, interpreting their mandate well beyond what it was and enforcing well beyond what they could do. And these were major cases. Um, mm-hmm. And there was even another one that hasn't gone to the Supreme Court, which was in the Fifth Circuit, which is Texas and Louisiana, that said yes, the entire SEC judicial system was unconstitutional. That hasn't made it up to the Supreme Court yet. Um, but they said n- none of these judges are lawfully appointed. <laughs> so the SEC's administrative judge system, which is where Ripple currently sits, we have at least one circuit that says that's not the way it's supposed to be. So the SEC is fighting um, a lot. Uh, the truth is, I don't think the SEC cares that much about crypto the way people think they do. We get in our own bubble, right? You're like, it's important to us, so it's important to everybody. If you look at the SEC's task list of what their priorities are, it's like 30 pages of administrative garbage, right? It's all stuff like computer upgrades and personnel and like office and furniture. And like, it's like just pure administrative minutia that's their, their priority list. XML reporting. I mean, they've got a big mandate, right? All the financial reporting from every public company. United States, every financial advisor, um, every broker, they're maintaining those databases. They have a huge data management mandate. And just that in and of itself, it needs to be maintained. And my guess is they've got infrastructure problems at the SEC that need to be addressed. And some of these legal issues that we all get caught up in, uh, you know, I just don't think that the commissioners put that much thought into it when they have what's on their plate 
is things are broken in their office, right? Okay, I can't get a typewriter to work. Stuff like that. <laughs> Tim, we could go on for another hour just about the SEC and crypto, and and uh, and it would be great. But uh, well, I think we should save that for another time, as I've taken so much of your uh, time today. Thank you so much for everything uh, today, my friend. Be sure and check out Timothy Peterson. All the links for everything Tim is in the show notes. Uh, another great appearance on the Hot Wallet Podcast, my friend. Thank you, Scott. From the bottom, ain't no half-stepping. I'm the dog, I made it through so they don't ask questions. Long Beach, and it ain't no half-repping. Once a dog, always a dog, so they don't ask questions. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Crier Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.